How do you, how do you want to be remembered? How do you want to be remembered? Well, when I think about this question, and I do think about it more the older I get, I often think of an epitaph. A variety of things appear on epitaphs. You might take a stroll one day through a cemetery and just read those. Maybe it's just me, but I I have a strange fascination with that when I find myself at a cemetery. I, I like to read those little blurbs about a person. A little phrase trying to capture a life. It might not be fair that a whole life is to be summed up in four or five little words or just a couple of words. Faithful father, loving mother, devoted son, Well, I don't open today's message with this question to be discouraging or to necessarily think of death or the brevity of life. My wife may already be wanting to say, let's not start off thinking about that. Well, the Bible does itself tell us it's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. A house of mourning does make us think about the brevity of life. A house of mourning does help us to think that we will not always be here, and one day there will be people who remember us. How do you want to be remembered? Well, personally, there are several things I'd probably like to be remembered for. I might like to be remembered as a faithful father, as a loving husband, a devoted son, And in fact, if I was remembered for those things, I would be remembered for something better than I deserved to be remembered for. For in fact, I haven't always been a faithful father or a loving husband or a devoted son. But there is something else that I'd like to be remembered for, one that's more related to my calling in life as a minister and perhaps more appropriate for today. I'd like my epitaph to read something like, he labored for our joy. He labored for our joy. Well, I take this from the Apostle Paul's second epistle to the church of the Corinthians. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. We are workers with you for your joy. I think that captures in brief what I long to achieve in my own labor in the ministry of Christ. That I might one day, when I hang up the, hang up the robe or whatever you want to call it, that I can look back and I could say I labored. I labored with the people of God for their joy. Colossians chapter 1 verse 28 says that we seek to present men complete in Christ. That is fully developed, mature, or to borrow from the little epistle of Jude, we seek to present Christ's people to him one day standing in his presence blameless and with great 
joy. Jesus prayed for our joy. In John 17, he prayed that we as his followers might have his own joy made full in us. Do you know that Jesus was concerned about your joy? So much so that he wants to give you his joy and see that it developed to a point of fullness in you. He taught us in John chapter 15 that his joy might be in us and that this joy would be made full. His apostles picked up on this. In fact, the apostle John in 1 John chapter 1 taught that those given to him, and he, he wrote this to them, why? He wanted their joy to be complete. Jesus, when he went back to the Father, he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And one of the principal fruits of the Holy Spirit is what? Joy. It ranks number two in the list, if we're thinking in terms of you know, a sequential series of, of fruits. Or we might just think of the fruit of the Spirit as being love and love being this like multiple fruit that just begins to unfold, and as it unfolds in our lives, joy is the principal result. Paul says in Romans chapter 14 that the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but it's about joy and holiness. This is all in concert with question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism when it asks the question, what is the chief end of man to enjoy God forever? Well, for this we strive, brothers and sisters. And for this I want to strive with you very particularly today and for the following three Lord's Days, I want to strive with you for your joy. This is a great picture of the church. This is a great picture of the church in Philippi. It's a great picture of the churches that we have gathered here, and it's a great picture of the church that we are longing to form. Christ's covenant, Reformed Baptist Church, a fellowship of joy. I'm not making that our marquee or our motto today, but I like it. This would... This I would like to begin to point you to today, that we might be a fellowship of joy, adopting the mind of Christ in the mutual pursuit of everlasting joy. Well, that's the title that I had Ryan put in the, uh, in the, in the bulletin for us, and, and I hope to unpack that today and in the coming Lord's Days. We're going to do this by looking closely at the book of Philippians. Well, it won't be too close because we only have four Sundays and we have four chapters. So we're going to fly high, but we'll descend uh, to look at some trees and some details as we go through it. If you're a note taker, let me kind of paint the big picture for you of where we're going to be going in the following weeks. I have four heads as an overview for the study, and we'll try, Lord willing, to cover the first of these today. The four heads are these. Number one, adopting the mind of Christ. And each, each header has a main point and then like a subpoint. And the main point in the first header is adopting the mind of Christ, and the subpoint is thinking differently about everything. 
thinking differently about everything. If you and I have the mind of Christ, if we put on the mind of Christ, if we're thinking, if you will, God's thoughts after him, we're going to be thinking differently about everything. We're going to be thinking differently than our neighbors. We're going to be thinking differently than many that might be in our family. We're going to be thinking like Christ. And this makes us think differently about everything. Secondly, Lord willing, next Lord's Day, we're going to be seeking Christ's interests. Seeking Christ's interests. And the subtitle here, I've kind of borrowed from Robin Hood. I've entitled Timothy and His Merry Men. Timothy and his merry men. There are several people that the Apostle Paul points to in his letter as those who seek Christ's interest. It should be no surprise to you that everybody does not seek Christ's interest. But Timothy was one that was very distinct with the Apostle Paul. He said, I have no one else like him. And he means I have no one else like him with me. And he says, he is interested in the things of Christ. But there's some, there's some joyful fellows that kind of follow in Timothy's camp, and I want us to look at them. Third, following Christ's pattern. Following Christ's pattern. That's the big title for that third header there. And the subpoint we might say, humiliation, then glory. Humiliation, then glory. That's Christ's pattern. That's not the pattern of the people that you know in this world. And for some of you, listen, for some of you, that may not be your pattern either. Because you may be all about glory and not much for humiliation. But friend, Christ's pattern is humiliation, then glory. Sufferings, then the glories to follow. Fourth, a fourth major heading for this overview of Philippians is sharing Christ's joy. Sharing Christ's joy. And I take as the subheader here a line from Philippians chapter 4 where he says, Rejoicing in the Lord always. And I say it again, what? Rejoice. I kind of want to sing that little bitty song. Remember that song? He said, Rejoice in the Lord. We won't sing that today, but you get the point. Maybe you can hum it in your head. Maybe you can hum it in your head this week as you go. If you don't know the song, you can just come see me later, and we'll teach you kind of, you know, off book, all right? Adopting the mind of Christ, seeking Christ's interests, following Christ's patterns, sharing Christ's joy. But with that in mind, is kind of a big picture. I want to take us to the book of Philippians itself. Very small book. I'm so tempted to want to read it to you today, not to insult you, but to read it to you and with you because it's just so rich. It is a small text, four chapters, 104 verses, 2,277 words, packed full of joy. Paul labors in this brief text. He had labored among the Philippians in the past, and he hopes to labor among them again all for their joy. I don't take 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, where he says, we, we don't lord it over me, but you're working with you for your joy. I don't take that to be just Paul's kind of modus operandi for the church in Corinth. 
I take it to be his manner of ministry everywhere he is. He's laboring with the people that he's serving for their joy. And if it's good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. I want to labor with God's people for their joy. Joy is, I believe, the dominant driving theme of the letter. Everything in Philippians is pointing to this idea of joy. And just to kind of highlight that in your mind, I want to take you through the book itself and highlight some verses for you and have you look there with me. There are actually two principal terms that are used by the Apostle Paul uh, in the book of Philippians for joy. One is the little term kara, and one is the term Cairo. And these appear 16 different times in the letter. Let me just kind of walk through the letter with you and show you where these, where these come. The, the first term, kara, appears five times in the letter. It appears first in chapter 1 in verse 4. And he says, I'm always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Praying with joy. Chapter 1, verse 25. Look over there for a moment. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. Paul doesn't just want us making headway in the faith. He wants us making headway with joy in the faith. Chapter 2 In verse 2, he admonishes them and he calls upon them. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. There's a sense in which Paul's joy is tied up with the obedience, the joyful obedience of the people to whom he's ministering. This, is, this makes sense a little bit. Maybe if you think of, for example, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it talks about obey your leaders and those who rule over you. Why? Because if you're rebellious and you're difficult, your pastor's not what? He's not happy. <laughs> you know, they have that little adage at home, if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy, you know? And if, if the sheep are ornery, then it just makes for a very disgruntled shepherd, You get the picture, all right? It wouldn't be profitable for you in in any relationship if it's your job and you're a lousy employee. No wonder your manager is a grump. If you're at home and you're being disgruntled as a child, no wonder your parents aren't full of joy. If you're a husband and you're grumpy and, and ugh, no wonder your wife struggles. In church, it's no less. Why? Because our, our lives are so intertwined and interconnected. And here Paul says, I am laboring with you for joy. I want you to make my joy complete. Chapter 2, verse 29. I'm getting sidetracked. i got to keep myself on track here. Verse 29. Receive him, speaking of Epaphroditus. We'll come back to him later, maybe a few weeks. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy. Hold men like him in high regard. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, we find this term again. Therefore, my beloved children, whom I long to see, my joy and crown. 
Now, that's that first term. And the other term, Cairo, is much like it. Back in chapter 1, uh, we find this term in verse 18. He says, What then only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed in this I rejoice. And then says again, and I will rejoice. Paul has a way of kind of, you know, he gets stuck on saying joy. He just like says it, and then he says it again, joy. He's just like a broken record. It just keeps coming back over and over again. And this is quite striking if you study the background of the book of Philippians. Where is Paul right now? Anybody know? He's in prison in Rome under house arrest, probably chained to one of the praetorian guards with a, with a couple of feet of chain. Guy's getting a lecture in the gospel every day. Oh, I got to go be chained to Paul again. Oh, this will be a long one. Can you imagine being chained to Paul on Sunday? Probably preaching a whole lot in his house, all right? And uh, so, and he, and he keeps emphasizing joy. Chapter 2, verse 17. I love this interchange here in verses 17 and 18. He says, But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm rejoicing. He gives this sacrificial language. And even if I'm, I'm just like a drink offering being poured out, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. So you too... So you, I, so, excuse me, verse 18, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Now, this is an interesting little twist he does here in verses 17 and 18. He says, I rejoice, Cairo. Verse 18, so you too, I urge you, rejoice, Cairo. But then, the second use of rejoice in each phrase, or joy, is a different word. He says, I, Cairo, I rejoice, and you share my joy. I share my joy with you all. When he, when he, when he gives that word, it's a, it's a little different word. It's Cairo with a prefix, and it's sug Cairo. There's going to be a test later, so you've got to get all these little Greek words down, Okay. Sug Cairo, and what he means here is rejoice with. Rejoice with either someone or something. And here he's saying, I'm rejoicing, and I want to share my joy with you. You're rejoicing, share your joy with me. You see this mutual movement of the sharing of joy within the body of Christ. Well, we got to move on. Chapter 2, verse 28. He says, Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. He has this same kind of an idea back in chapter, down in chapter 4, verse 4, where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice, And he's not done. He comes down in verse 10 of chapter 4 and says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that it, now at last you've revived your concern for me. So here he's, he's giving himself as an example. He's, you know, you, you've, you've heard the idea, you know, don't tell people to do what you're unwilling to do yourself. So here Paul is calling them to rejoice, and then he's showing them I'm doing what? I'm rejoicing. I'm doing the very same thing I'm asking you to do. Well, in Philippians, Paul is striving for their joy. We see him praying for them with joy. 
seeking to remain in the flesh for their joy. He says in chapter one, I desire to depart and go with Christ, which is better by far. But he says, but I'm wanting to remain for your progress and joy. He shares his joy with them. He sends Epaphroditus back to them for their joy. He writes to them for their joy. He seeks to assure and encourage them that they are his joy. I love that in chapter 4, verse 1. You are my joy and my crown. And he presents himself as an example of joy, the same joy he's calling them to have. You know, the pursuit of joy, though, is riddled with many difficulties, right? It's like going from point A to point B in Fort Worth and trying to avoid potholes. Sometimes those are just kind of... Anybody work here for the city of Fort Worth streets? Okay, then we can talk all kinds of trash about them today. Man! No, I'm just kidding. There are those streets with notorious potholes. doesn't matter how many times they fill them. The next day, everything's gone. It just like evaporated out of there, disappeared into the air. Well, the path the Philippians are on is a dangerous path. And there are things in that path that are fighting against their joy. Sometimes when people think about the book of Philippians, what's the happiest book in the Bible? Oh, Philippians is the happiest book in the Bible. Hmm, well, it has a lot to do with happiness or joy. I'm not making a hard distinction between those at the moment. There are many things in Philippi that are not conducive to joy, at least not when seen up front. Think with me just for a moment about a couple of them. False teaching. In Philippians chapter 3, we encounter false teachers at two different points. We don't have time to go into them in any kind of detail, but in chapter 3 and verse 2, Paul says, beware of the dogs. This is in the happy letter. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. These are those Judaizers that often dog the heels of the Apostle Paul, trying to press upon people's circumcision and the keeping of the law if they want to truly be justified before God. These are the, these are the legalists. And he says, beware of them. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. By the time he gets to the end of chapter 3, he's off the legalists and he's on to the libertines. The Philippians didn't just have people in Philippi trying to press upon them the need to obey the law to be saved. They also had people coming along trying to abuse grace. Look in chapter 3 and verse 18. He says, For many walk of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, and they set their minds on earthly things. These are fleshly driven people. They're like the people in the, in the book of Jude. You might recall those who were, uh, had crept into the church uh, to which uh, Jude writes, and he says in Jude 
in verse 4, certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. These have crept into the church to which Jude writes, they've crept into Philippi. There's a danger in Philippi of false teaching, whether it's legalistic kind or the libertine kind, it's false teaching, and it prevents or it, it, it presents a, a, an, an opposition to their pursuit of joy. Because if they embrace those positions, either, either one, legalism or, or libertinism, it's, they're both fleshly, are they not? And the pleasures of the flesh, the pleasures of sin, like it says in Hebrews chapter 11, Moses found were only what? They're only good for a time, right? They don't last. Friend, if that's you here today, engaged in some kind of legalistic pursuit of Christ or some kind of free grace pursuit of Christ where Christ has no no commands to give you whatsoever, let me just warn you and say, the end of that path, hear this, is not joy. It is not joy. It is a path laid by the devil who steals and kills and destroys. Not only is false teaching a danger in Philippi, discontent is a problem. Discontent. Paul holds himself out as an example in Philippians chapter 4 who, as one who's learned to have plenty and learned to go without, but he's learned what? I've learned to be content in any and every situation. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There are tensions. There are divisions in Philippians chapter 4. In the first few verses, he he mentions a couple of women, Yodia and Syntyche, that are apparently, they are at odds. Did you hear that? That's a Greek word. They are at odds with one another. The women's ministry in Philippi is going south quick, and Paul says, oh my goodness. And then, did you love this, in in verse, uh, verse 3, he says, indeed, True companion, and and the the Greek word for companion there is the word syzygous, and I believe it's a proper name. And he's he's naming the guy. Indeed, true or loyal, the word true can mean loyal. Loyal syzygous, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement, also with the rest of my fellow workers. Can you imagine? Everybody knows in the church. Yodia and Syntyche, remember? Yeah, they're going at each other. And then he names the guy in the letter that's supposed to fix it. All of a sudden, you hear at the back of the sanctuary, it was the door slamming while Syzygus was running out. You've got to be kidding. You want me to jump in the middle of two cats right there? They're, They're already going at it, and I'm supposed to go fix it. I can imagine what that might have looked like to him. But these tensions, these divisions, listen, these divisions that are allowed to permeate the church and go on in the church, they are fighting against the work of joy. They're going the opposite direction. 
The Philippians are concerned for Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2. They're worried about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was one of their ministers, probably one of their elders. He's referred to in chapter 2 in verse 25 as your messenger and your minister to my need. This This was a huge move on the Philippians' part. The Philippians know Paul is in prison. They know Paul is in need. And and they say, we got to help Paul. We got to help Paul. Who are we going to send? You know who they send? They don't send who, you know, most might send. Well, what's the most inconsequential person that we have in the church? Uh, who could we do without for like, you know, I don't know, six months or something like that? It, he might be a while. I was telling my family about this last night. I thought, who, who's the 11th toe? You know, who can we spare? Do we have like two pinky toes on one foot and we can, we can cut one of those off and send him to go help Paul? Who will be the, the, the least noticeable person to leave the church and we'll send him? That's not what they do. They send Epaphroditus, one of their ministers. They're like, which officer can we send? Which one will be the most helpful to Paul? Let's give up our pastor for months and send him to help Paul. Could you imagine? What a gesture. What a generous gesture from a church to send one of their ministers to care for the Apostle Paul. Must have been hard for Epaphroditus to leave. Must have been hard for them to let him go. And then when they heard that he was sick, almost to the point of death, that must have grieved them deeply. And their, their grief is warring against the joy, the very joy that Paul wants to labor amongst them to provide. Not only are they worried about Epaphroditus, they're worried about Paul. They're worried about Paul back in chapter 1, and they're praying for him. Back in chapter 1, in verse 19, he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. They've heard that he's in danger. They've heard that he's in prison. They're sending Epaphroditus to Paul, but they're sending their prayers to the Lord, and they're wanting God to provide and protect Paul. All these things are waging against the joy of the church. So what is the solution? Well, the solution that Paul presents them with is what we might call a new mindset, a new way to think. In fact, this mindset is one that they have had in the past, but they're in danger of losing and need to rekindle quickly. In the book of Philippians, there are at least two terms or two concepts that rise to the surface that are they're, they're, they're leading ideas, we could say. The idea of joy becomes the dominant, ultimate goal of the book of Philippians because Paul is laboring for them to have this joy. But the way to obtain this joy is through the adoption of, of a mutual mindset 
where they will take on the mind of Christ and they will pursue this joy together. Now we find this idea of having the mind of Christ in chapter 2, verse 5. Let me just take you there for just a moment. Chapter 2, verse 5, that's where we find the verse. And it simply says this, in the New American Standard, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Or some translations like the King James, have this mind in you, or let this mind be in you, I think is the way the King James reads. The word is about a mental disposition, a mental attitude, a way to approach the Christian life, a way to think about the Christian life. And this concept of, of this mindset or this, this kind of thought life that you're supposed to have, this sentiment of mind that you're supposed to have, is found throughout the book as well. I want to take you through the book again, and I want to highlight a couple of other texts that point us to this idea of a mindset. If you read this uh, yesterday, I sent an email out to encourage you to read Philippians before you came, and depending on what translation you use, you may or may not have seen uh, some of these terms, so I want to stress them to you. Philippians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Now, if you're reading that verse as a 21st century American that's watched too many Hallmark movies, you might read that and go, Paul is really touchy-feely in this movie, all right? Well, we need a better, a better translation here. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you. The American Standard Version of 1901 gives this translation, it is only right for me to be thus minded, be thus minded about you. The King James says, it's only right for me to, to think this, to think this. And even the word heart, even the word heart is not how we would typically think of the heart. Well, I have it in my head, but not where? In my heart. I know it, but I don't feel it. All right, we we kind of bifurcate the head and the heart. That's not a that's not a good thing to do when we're understanding what's happening with the writers of the Bible here. The heart is that place of of thoughtfulness and 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 deep consideration of things. It's not separated from mental conceptions. It may take us deeper than just information, but it's not without that. It's not just a center point of feelings. He's not turning mushy here. He's, he's wanting to be, a, has a particular mind about them, and that's what makes it all proper and right for him to think this way about you. Why? Because I have you in the depths of my heart, the depths of my mind, since both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Paul sees a partnership between him and the Philippians, and they're they're deeply intertwined together. Chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 2, he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. This is one of the most explicit statements we find in the book of Philippians, and we'll come back to this in coming weeks. It's one of the most explicit statements where we find the relationship of the connection between joy and the mind. He says, 
make my joy complete. What would make Paul's joy complete? If the church has the same mind. Consider this, if they have the same mind, if they have the same attitude toward one another, they're going to be engaging in life together in that pursuit of not just Paul's joy, but their own joy. And in having their own joy, they're going to have that joy to share with Paul, and Paul's going to then share his joy with them. And there's that mutual reciprocal sharing of joy. Also in chapter 2, it says, Verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. We could say here, intent on one mental purpose. Or the King James here says, I believe, um, of one mind. It's the same term. It's just being translated differently by the translators, which kind of makes it difficult for us to to see it. But also again in verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And we're going to come back to this when we look at that, uh, oh, I forget which one it was, uh, one of those uh, overview points, the idea of uh, next, next week, seeking Christ's interest, Timothy and his merry men. They are those who, who seek not their own interest, but the interests of of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 5, we've already seen, have this attitude or have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, look over there. Chapter 3 and verse 15, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, or the King James, be thus minded. And if in anything you have a different attitude, or the King James, if in anything else you are otherwise minded, you're thinking differently. Chapter 3, verse 19. Now, this is kind of the opposite. He says, uh, this is the, uh, the, the false teachers, the libertines. In verse 19 of chapter 3, he says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Their, their attitude of mind is earthly. It is looking down, not up, we might say. Chapter 4, verse 2. I urge Yodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. And, and this is, it's nice that they've smoothed it out, live in harmony, but it'd be much better if they just kept the literal translation. Be of the same mind. Yodia, Syntyche, you're not thinking properly. You're not, you're not, that's why your lives are going different directions here. You're not thinking like Christ. You ever had an argument with your spouse and thought somebody's wrong here and it must be her? Come on, guys. You do that, don't you? Sure you do. You don't want to say it out loud, but you do. It must be her. And then you realize later, no, it must be me. Well, it's sure, sure to be somebody. Because somebody, maybe, maybe both buddies, <laughs> aren't thinking like Christ. If we were both thinking like Christ, we wouldn't be in this mess that we're in. You get the point there. Yodi and Cynthia need to think differently. They need to have the same mind. Chapter 4, verse 10. 
But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. The NAS here uses this word concerned, but it's better translated, I think, mindful. Mindful. You, you've revived your mindfulness for me. And here he's talking about the fact that they have sent him a monetary gift. Uh, they, wanted to, they wanted to help him in his ministry earlier. They couldn't. They couldn't, didn't have the money or the resources to give, but now they, they got, I guess, bigger offerings and, and they got some, some resources to give to Paul and they sent a gift with Epaphroditus when he went to minister to Paul. He thinks this is a sign, an indicator of their mindfulness. Indeed, you were mindful before, but you lacked opportunity. So just because you don't have the money to give someone doesn't mean you don't care about them. You just may not have the resources, right? But now you get the resources and that mindfulness that you had for them before now gets some tangible expression. Well, let's come back to chapter 2, verse 5, for just a moment. And let's see if we can tie this up in a bow. Chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude or have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus Literally, we might translate the whole of the phrase, this attitude of mind among you. Now, I'm, not, I'm trying not to translate here. Now, if, if you know anything about translations or dealing with going from one language to another, it's, it's like virtually impossible to not offer some kind of interpretation in your translation. We're trying to be as literal as possible with the whole phrase, and this is what I would offer you. This attitude of mind among slash in you, which also in Christ Jesus. This attitude of mind, among slash in, or among or in you, which also in Christ Jesus. And you're hearing that, and you're going, I think we're missing some words. Yes, we're missing some verbs, aren't we? All right. Um, this is common. This is common in a Greek text to find a verb is missing. Uh, it's, very, it's very elliptical. It's very brief. It's very terse. It's very concise. And if you were Greek and you were Paul and you were writing to Philippians and you know, they're, they're, you're able to hear, you can almost like supply. I remember one, uh, one, uh, one summer when I was in college, I spent the summer in the UP, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And I, I was one, one evening after church, uh, the, the group that we were with, they were going to go like get a burger or get a Coke or something like that. And they all looked at me and they said, hey, my best UP accent. I can't really do it very well. You want to go with? I'm like, yeah. With who? Where? Like, don't you finish your sentences? And it like happened all summer long. You want to go with? Anybody ever hear that? Kind of, kind of, okay. Maybe, maybe a few of you, right? And you got to like supply it. Well, if, if, if you were a native of that area, everybody knew what was going on. They just found some dumb Texan that just didn't understand what was happening. To go with, finish a sentence, the whole thing. All right. Well, <clears throat> so let's see if we can kind of fill this in a little bit. Here's one way to do it. This attitude of mind is to be found among you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This attitude of mind is to be found among you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, that might help. I think here's a better one. Uh, C.D.F. Moule, who was a, a Greek theologian from England, 
um, mid to you know 1950 to 1975, I think somewhere in there, he taught at Cambridge, and he's a, a Greek scholar. And this is this is his translation, and it's a little more filled out. Adopt towards one another in your mutual relations the same attitude that was found in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read that again. Adopt towards one another in your mutual relations, going back and forth, the same attitude that was found in Christ Jesus. Now, we don't have time to kind of engage in the whole of the text, but I want to read to you the rest of this text so you can see what we're talking about. It may not be familiar to you. If it is, then great. Paul says in Philippians 2.5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, or to use the translation by Mool, adopt towards one another in your mutual relations the same attitude that was found in Christ Jesus. Well, what attitude was that? Verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Remember the point we mentioned earlier? Humiliation, then glory. This is the humiliation part. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. St. Augustine, 4th century bishop of Hippo in northern Africa, was asked one time, what are the central principles in the Christian life? What are the central principles of the Christian life? Augustine said, number one is humility. And then he said, number two, humility. And number three, can you guess? Humility. Humility, humility, humility. This is picture of Christ. Humiliation, then glory. Why does Jesus do this? Now, we're going to, again, we're going to come back and unpack this all month long, but, but why does he do this? Let me, let, me, let me take you to one other text, and then we're going to come back to Philippians chapter 2. In verse 7 of chapter 2, it says, he emptied himself, taking the form of of a bond servant. This is his assumption of a human nature, his becoming man. Not his ceasing to be God, for he is very God of very God. He has always been God. But he does assume to himself a human nature that is joined hypostatically, theologians use that fancy term, to his divine nature making the one person of Christ. One person, two natures, all right? Got my fingers right there. One person, two natures. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verse 1. 
Hebrews chapter 12. It's a great, encouraging text about being surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses from Hebrews chapter 11, that hall of faith. Let us lay aside every encumbrance of sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that's marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You've heard that. You've read that before. It's a stirring text. You want to have that chariots of fire music playing in the background. It's just like, oh, it's awesome. Why? Why does he do it? Hebrews 12, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, listen, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Can you hear Philippians in that little verse? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Now, what I want to do here is I want to take two words out of this verse, verse 2, and I want to go back to Philippians chapter 2. I want to take the word for, which describes the purpose, and I want to take the word joy, which describes the goal, all right? And I want to go back to Philippians 2. Verse 7. We'll get a running head start. Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but for joy emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? For joy. All I'm doing there is I'm taking Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, and I'm interpreting it in light of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. For joy. That's why he did this. And listen, he did this for his own joy, and he did this for your joy. Everything he's doing, he's doing for your joy. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24 says, I'm laboring with you for your joy. Might I add? Jesus is laboring through his ministers with his people for the joy of the church. Christ had this kind of mindset Paul had this kind of mindset. We've already seen it in chapter 1 in verse 7. It's right for Paul to have this kind of mindset toward them. Why? Because they're partners in the gospel for the joy of the very nations of the world. The Philippians themselves had this kind of mindset in chapter 3 in verse 15. He said that as many of us as are mature or perfect We do have this mindset, and some of those Philippians were included in that. But then also in chapter 4, in verse 10, he said, You were concerned or mindful of me. Some, though, that we've seen in Philippians don't have this mindset. 
You recall back in chapter 3, verse 19, those who have their minds set on what? Earthly things. Friend, that may be you here today. Maybe you have your mind set on earthly things. You know, if your mind is set on earthly things, listen, if your mind is set on earthly things, it will never find lasting joy in those earthly things. You may feel really happy about something you're doing right now. But it's an earthly thing. And if you put all your eggs in that basket, those eggs will turn rotten. And it will not turn for joy. It won't turn for joy for you. It won't turn for joy for any of those that are around you. It will not turn for the joy of Christ. Some don't have it. In chapter 4, verse 2, we have Yodi and Syntyche that what? They don't have this kind of mindset. They need to have. They need to be of the same mind. And in fact, they all as a church... They need to adopt that kind of mindset again. This is why Paul tells them in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Chapter 2, verse 3, do everything with humility of mind. Chapter 3, verse 5, chapter 2, verse 5, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 15, if in anything you have a different mindset, God will reveal that also to you. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says to them, and be and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Jesus. That word comprehension is also a word that's akin to this whole idea of a new mindset. He says in chapter 4, verse 8, we need to be dwelling on these things. What things? The things of Christ. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, anything excellent or worthy of praise, dwell. Here, think, be minded about those kinds of things. Why? For joy. Christ, for joy, adopted a particular mindset. Paul, for joy, adopted a particular mindset. The Philippians, for joy, were to adopt a particular mindset. We, for joy, should do the same. And then someday, well, I don't want to talk about our epitaph before we even merge together as a church. But let's not talk about the epitaph. Let's just talk about the reputation. The Christ Covenant Reformed Baptist Church would be a fellowship of joy. A fellowship that has the mind of Christ, that adopts the mind of Christ in a mutual pursuit of joy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bless your name we ask, oh God, that you would help us as we make way through this precious little book of the Bible, full of such glorious and weighty things. God, would you make us a congregation of like-minded brothers and sisters for joy, for the joy of Christ, for the joy of one another, and for the joy of the nations of the world. Oh, I love that psalm that says, let the nations sing for joy. Oh, God, add to your people 
May the joy of knowing Christ, may it spill over to so many that we don't even know yet because you've made this church a fellowship of joy as we together pursue the mind of Christ. Bless you. Thank you so for your word. Bless it to our hearts in Jesus' name.